glad to have you back for another episode of the Resilient Leadership Learning from Crisis podcast. I'm Seth Schultz, the Executive Director of the Resilient Shift. On today's episode, you'll hear Peter Willis and I discuss insights on leadership during a crisis from our latest ninth round of weekly interviews, conducted with the same group of 12 senior decision makers in city government and large global organizations who are navigating their organization's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Peter, welcome back. Nice to be here as always, Seth. Indeed. I think this is, uh, what is this, round nine for us? It is indeed, round nine. Round nine. And I saw last week that we we got our midterm reflection project up. Very exciting. It's, uh, yeah, we're really thrilled with that. Very, very juicy collection of insights. I was really impressed. Big shout out to the team on this project because it, it looked great and it's really easy to kind of scroll through the website and and punctuated with the perspectives and the points and the quotes from the participants. I thought it was really cool. So well done. Fortunately, we're not biased at all. No, no. <laughs> well, it's hard. It's hard, right? It's hard not to treat this kind of as a new family and and you're really proud of of your family members when they're doing cool stuff because of this level of openness and kind of trust and bravery that everybody's exhibiting in sharing weekly with what they're learning and what they're scared about and what they're hopeful for. So it's, it's hard not to be, be proud of, of that. When you see people stepping up in a role that it has to exhibit being out of your comfort zone and being vulnerable, that is leadership. So I, I couldn't be more proud of all of our participants in the team. So I'm curious, Peter, where um, after kind of this in-depth work on the midterm review and, and then catching up with the participants again. What's on your mind today? What are we talking about? Well, um, we had a, a very full week of conversations last week, and they distilled down, I think, into two broad categories I'd like to talk about with you. One is the kind of, I suppose, the work in the trenches and uh, in confronting both the COVID-19 crisis and in some of our participants' worlds, confronting the racism protests and everything that spins out of that. Uh, so it's there, both the, the good and the bad that's coming out of that experience. And bear in mind, they've been slogging at it for months now. Well, I want to spend a bit more time on the, this question of uh, leadership, because it's really becoming clear now that there's leadership and leadership in a crisis, uh, particularly an extended crisis like this. Uh, yeah, I think we've got some interesting things to talk about there. Excellent. To kick things off, I'm really curious on how you're seeing this play out from the participants because it's been a really interesting week here in the U.S. We've got these phased approaches to reopening. Where I live, um, actually today is marking phase three. And, and there's four phases of reopening society to kind of where we were before. So today is a major milestone for the part of the U.S. that I live in. But it's also been really interesting as I'm talking to friends and family and colleagues across the U.S., different states and different regions are at different levels of reopening or not. And it's complicated. I think a lot of people are really excited and enthusiastic and, and you know, summer is officially here to reopen and kind of get back to normal. But there's a, a large undertone of concern, anxiousness associated with trying to establish a new social contract again. People want to get back to normal, but it's still not normal. You know, when you see a friend, there's no handshakes. It sounds silly, but it's very strange to say hi to somebody while staying distant from them and then ending a conversation 
and then just kind of walking away. There's like no beginning and end to that kind of social interaction. It's very strange. And at the same time, where while most parts of the country here in the U.S. are beginning to reopen, we're also seeing a large uptick in many parts of, of the U.S. on confirmed cases. So we're starting to see an upswing again, while at the same time, we're opening back up, which is again, causing some anxiety. So really curious to hear how that's playing out with the participants and geographically around the world. Well, this is the great privilege I have each week of traveling around the world, sensing what is uppermost for these people that I talk with. And as you know, I talk with Peter Chamley in Melbourne, and I talk with Anne Rosenberg in Denmark. Now, there are two places where the crisis has really been mastered. They're aware that things could go wrong again, but I would say they're in a strong position. It's becoming an interesting question now as to how, what is their relationship with the, the rest of the world where that is absolutely not the case. Places like the States, like Brazil, where um, I speak with Adriana and the UK, I think having been through the, those first, I don't know, say two months where the whole world was locked down and agreeing we were all in this together, a completely unique human experience. Never, ever before have we been all together agreeing to do one thing for our mutual protection. And now it's all starting to open up and fray. It's clear that some have succeeded and others are failing, and there's still a long way to go. And, and I'll give you a little example from Piero in Milan, who shared that um, he's quite concerned because he started sort of cycling to visit friends on his evenings and weekends and so on around the city. And he's noticing there's a lot more people sleeping rough. What do you mean? I'm not familiar with that term, people sleeping I'm rough. sorry, that's uh, meaning sleeping on the sidewalk. Oh, uh, okay. Homelessness. Homeless, yeah. He, he notices that the shops are opening up and people are spending and there's a sort of a buzz around of getting back into, hey, look, I can go and buy stuff again. And he's going around feeling, yeah, but guys, you should be saving now because this is no way that the economic impact of this has no way worked itself out of the system. And you should be saving, not spending. But then, of course, an economist would say, no, 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 please spend, because that's how the economy starts to reboot itself. So I can't begin to judge who's right, and that's a, it's a sort of separate issue. But there's a, he's, he's concerned. He's thrilled, and everybody's thrilled that it's summer and people are able to get out and they're free to go and travel locally. It is an interesting, yeah, it is an interesting. Yeah, it's, so he's just noticing that things are absolutely not as they were, for, particularly for the more vulnerable. And speaking of the more vulnerable, Adriana in Brazil, uh, made such an interesting observation to me. She said, we're all putting on our masks now and we have to wear our masks. But actually beneath those sort of protective antiviral masks that we put on, our masks as a society, the ones we've habitually worn, have actually fallen away and our vulnerabilities, and in some cases our prejudices, have been revealed in a way we're not used to. We actually went on to have quite a lengthy conversation spinning out of that observation. But certainly in the whole George Floyd saga, that's clearly some masks have slipped badly there. I mean, I say badly, it's, it's a great thing that they've slipped. But this sense that now we're okay and we can cope that and racism isn't nearly as bad as people make out and so on, that mask fallen away completely. 
it's interesting. It's really interesting that that turn of phrase and that analogy from Adriana about wearing masks for one reason and other masks coming off. And obviously that is certainly, as you mentioned, playing out with the systemic racism, more kind of structural racism issues here that um, have been ignited in, in the U.S. You know what I find interesting also about that analogy is that it's also kind of, in a way, the opposite of what's happening here in America again, which is people here are now emerging from their homes. And as we're beginning to relax the rules of, of self-isolation and reopening, as I had mentioned just a minute ago, people are not wanting to wear their masks, Peter. People are kind of beginning to kind of, I want to claw back my individual freedoms and rights and I don't want to wear a mask and this thing was overblown and it's not an issue and it didn't happen to me and darn it if I'm not going to wear my mask. So it's almost like the opposite. It's like not wearing a mask to reassert yourself and that you're not vulnerable and you want your rights back. It's a very strange dichotomy that's happening here and almost the exact opposite of the really insightful analogy that uh, Adriana made. Well, you remember that story I told you about from Piero in Milan, that, that bar that opened up and they closed because people were coming and saying exactly that. It's my freedom. I don't have to wear a mask, even if you ask me. Exactly. So there, there clearly is that. As I indicated at the beginning, there's some, there's some cause for optimism uh, in, in some of the conversations I've been having. And to, to stick with Piero in, in Milan, he, <laughs> he said, you know, uh, I'll tell you what gives me hope is that we're Italians. And I said, what do you mean? I know that you're Italian. <laughs> it's we're not good in normal times. We're good in a crisis. So I think we'll be dealing better than other countries. When they have chaos, they go crazy. And when we have chaos, we have fun. And I thought, wow, I don't want anybody to go in scientifically and, and validate that. For me, that is Piero's truth about what it is to be Italian. And I believe it. I mean, full disclosure, being married to an Italian, I, I think it's true. <laughs> it's nice. I was, it's funny. I was going to ask you, you know, in, in this conversation we've been having, what are the kind of positive signs? Um, and I just love that, you know, because it is personal. It is, it is cultural. And we're seeing these different cultural issues play out, whether it's in, you know, Latin America or uh, Australia or Europe or, yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? It is. Not so much, uh, uh, but definitely cause for optimism for, for Danes, talking with Anne in Copenhagen. She was saying that, um, and she's taken on a role, uh, a sort of informal ambassadorship for the city of Copenhagen. And she says that she's being briefed about incoming investment trends. And Denmark is suddenly flavor of the month for corporations and investors looking to, to build business in, in different countries. And they're saying Denmark works for us because we can see how well they've come out of this crisis. That's the kind of place we would like to put our money or our factories or our offices. And I thought, well, that's a no brainer. Of course, you know, if I wanted to move my organization or a branch out into a, a new territory, and I was looking at Northern Europe, go for one of the ones that um, did a neat job of marshalling its people and its institutions during a crisis. Quite remarkable. And you're seeing these ripple effects or impacts of how this was all handled. We, we were talking about weeks ago um, about Anne moving back to Denmark from that email and invitation she got. And we were kind of talking like, wow, I mean, what a, an amazing way to be there for your citizens and to build a new generation of loyalty. Well, to your point, companies are going to do the same thing. Who's been the most stable? Who's been the clearest and the most transparent about all of this? And yep, everybody's got the ability in this era of 
interconnectedness and globalization to move where they want to. It's never been cheaper to move goods and services. Yeah. So this is becoming, I think, how you handle the COVID crisis and to be a big indicator. And I, I want to kind of transition towards the conversation about leadership that we're going to have by referencing two separate comments I had from Barbara in the States and Elaine in, in London. They're both very proud of the way their organization has stepped up in all kinds of ways that we've talked about during the last two, three months. But they've got this concern that things could slip back in our ordinary lives. It doesn't take much for a a sense of fresh achievement and having acquired new self-respect and so on. Habits can rear their head and, and sort of lure you back into behaviors that were comfortable before all this. And they're, as leaders, they're both starting to ask themselves, how do I, Barbara used this image of a ratchet, which is how do I put a spoke, or I don't even know the technical engineering term for it, but you know that thing that you, that you insert into a ratchet so that it moves up one and then you stick it in and it won't go back. I think that's a fascinating leadership question. How do you maintain what you and your team have built, which is subtle habits of thought and communication? It's complicated, right? Because I think on one hand, you want to keep this, this new heightened sense of collaboration and interactivity between your teams and adaptability and thinking outside the box. On the other hand, you do need to ratchet back the intensity, the stress, the number of hours, and how do you keep the good stuff, but then try to normalize the process and you know, de-escalate and take the adrenaline out of it. But some of those are contributing factors to this heightened sense of purpose and engagement. So that's a, that's a tricky thing to grapple with right now. You're, you're so right, Seth. I, I like the way you're putting it. That's, it's a real leadership dilemma. And, and we've talked about the, this notion that um, Craig and one or two others were talking about, about deliberately learning out of this. Because I think that's one way to, to affirm with your team or teams Notice the difference that we achieved in the way we behave during this crisis. And let's bank that through some kind of a learning process so that we can, as you say, step down the intensity once it's possible to do so. But we now know consciously that we have it in our locker to produce this kind of performance and upping of the intensity when needed. And we did well, well done us. Let's move on into this quieter phase, ready for future crises. That is a, a leadership task, I would say. So, so where I wanted to go with the observations about leadership was losing sight in focusing on what seem to be leadership objectives and targets and so on, which seems to be like doing my job as a leader, you actually may be losing the thing that really matters. And the insight shared with me by uh, Alex in Oakland City where they are under tremendous pressure from the state of California to hit certain targets. That's numbers of tests done per day. If they hit those targets, that gives them the right to start opening up their economy at a particular speed that everybody is looking for. So there's tremendous pressure on the city administration and the county above them to get these numbers through. And so they've gone and contracted a company that's going to that has got a proposal for how it's going to do bulk numbers, and she's saying, "Well, whoa, that's great. I totally get we've got to hit those numbers, 
But in the process, what's going to happen is that in order to access this bulk testing, you're going to need email, you're going to need access to internet, you're probably going to need a car to drive in and drive out and so on. And that immediately excludes the more vulnerable members of the community who, guess what, are the ones who are suffering most from infection and sickness from the virus. So to me, it's a classic case of in the pursuit of what looks like a a real leadership necessity, you have to sort of develop blind spots around other stuff, which may actually turn out to be in the, given what's going on with the whole Black Lives Matter movement, may turn out to be quite incendiary if you get it wrong. It's a great example, Peter. And and just for the listeners to provide some context, in California, they were praised because the of the actions that um, the governor made. He he, you know, shut the state down very early. And as a result, California, which is I think the sixth largest economy in the world, if it's compared to other countries, you know, they they shut down early but avoided the worst impacts of COVID when when it was starting to spread across the US. But it was a, a pretty gutsy move in terms of leadership from shutting down the sixth largest economy so quickly and so severely compared to other states. But what's interesting is that there's been a bit of a backlash. So, you know, we, they avoided the worst cases compared to like New York and, and Washington state. But as a result of shutting down so early, there's been tremendous pressure in California about getting back to business. So California has now kind of rushed into the business of reopening, so to speak. And you're seeing COVID numbers now starting to climb quite significantly. So they avoided the worst by shutting down early, but they're now one of the states that have the highest increasing daily numbers of COVID. So it's this real juxtaposition. And then, and now as a result, they're trying to drive more data, more numbers and more confidence that in fact, where COVID is or isn't through these new daily testing targets to the example. So it's just fascinating at a, you know, at a state level versus a local level, what the driver is, what's motivating it. But again, how easy it is to lose the forest through the trees, so to speak, and or how vulnerable communities become more vulnerable. And a lot of the testing that's being done now to try to crank up these numbers is these temporary facilities and parking lots to have people drive through, which as you kind of referenced, but if you don't have a car, you can't access that and you're not going to get tested. So the virus could be circulating among poor communities, and we just don't know. Yeah. And from a leadership perspective, what I see at work here is the challenge of keeping the big picture in mind as you address the, the, the middle-sized picture and the, the micro picture. And, and that's why you need to have good people around you, people like Alex, who can just wave the flag and say, whoa, 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 remember, we've got this other big picture, which is so hard for us to grasp because it it's, hasn't been well mapped out within the bureaucracy, namely taking care of the vulnerable and the invisible. So I think she's doing a remarkable job there of flagging that. Such a great example. Do you, are there other examples like that? That's so fascinating. Yes, th- th- there was two, in fact. One was from uh, Steve at the World Bank, where he was saying, and this is so true of large institutions where you've got a lot of very high performance individuals wanting to to work their part of the system to optimize it. And they're, you know, remember they're lending money to a hundred and how many countries around the world. And he is sitting centrally trying to get those countries as they take up their stimulus loans and so on 
to do it in a way that is going to be least damaging and most beneficial to the climate outcomes. And he said he's noticing once again that individual managers at the bank are terribly tempted to optimize their own performance metrics, if you like, while missing the big picture, that this is one of those once-in-a-generation opportunities to roll forward the climate agenda. And he can see that. All his team can see that. And they're desperately trying to to swing that argument through all the managers who are client-facing. Yeah, it goes back to conversations you, you and I had several weeks ago when we were talking about the structure, the structure of city government, the structure of companies, what they were originally set up to do. And now again, with reopening and the chaos associated with, you know, a biological crisis and a financial crisis, and now trying to come to grips with reopening, some of that past previous structural organizational focus and mandate is going to come back into play now because I I need to get my business unit back up and running. There's an opportunity here for us to pick up some new clients. So how does that tension exactly as you're saying play out against these broader, bigger issues and goals that are still really important? And, you know, we're not out of the weeds, as they say, in solving the bigger problem. I think it's placing huge challenges on, on leadership to hold the big picture issues, which have been surfaced so powerfully during the last three or four months, uh, including racism, including the massive inequities that COVID has revealed, how to hold those in in mind and front of your organization's agenda while taking care of the the business that you have to do to keep from disappearing. Yeah, really good point. I want to um, sort of roll the camera forward into the future a little further with some, uh, I think, a really interesting well, it felt to me like a really interesting conversation that I had with Hani Pham, where we were talking about how can cities really help their local economies, and that means mainly small businesses, to resurface in a very different way out of this massive crisis. Where we got to, which I thought was so interesting, was what does it take? What kind of conversations does it take to actually conceptualize and then set in motion a transformational trajectory for your city's future. And I thought, just pause right there and note that you cannot get anywhere different than where you have been and where you're likely to go out of sheer inertia, unless you pause and have different conversations with different people around the table about what is possible, what your risks and what you're going to aspire to. And at that table, he was saying, they've got to be three types of people. Number one, you've got to have the people who are the change agents. And he reckons that typically chief resilience officers are a really good example of change agents. That's why they're there. But they're in the system. They're change agents in the system. You've also got to have the people inside the system who really know how the system works. And sometimes resilience officers are relatively new um, because it's a new concept. But you need people who've been there possibly for decades, really know where everything is, how it works, but are willing to enable change. There are some people who only want to keep things as they were because they're terrified of change. You don't want them at the table. So that's your second group. And the third group is people from outside the system who are radical thinkers. With those three ingredients around the table, two of them on the inside, one from the outside, you have the possibility of transformational thinking, which is not going to be untethered from the realities of the city and what actually might be achievable. But you have got the high likelihood of something 
that would really stretch the city. So you've been in cities for many, many, many years, Seth, and I wondered what you make of that recipe. It's, you know, around the chief resilience officers, as you said, that it is a new concept and not just a new concept. It's also going back to the last thing we were talking about from Steve's insights that he was sharing. It goes back to structural issues. A chief resilience officer is a person. Those individuals are trying to create cross-cutting mandates and areas of responsibility as it pertains to resilience that are throughout city government and agencies. So you also have the difficulty and the resistance associated with basically creating a new department in a city and or a new way of operating in a city. So it's both a physical issue and a conceptual issue. I would agree. I mean, you you do need to bring in those ideas and the ingredients you mentioned, I think are, I would say they're exactly right. You know, somebody who's playing that catalytical role, you've got somebody who's been there, knows the systems, knows the ins and outs, but is willing to participate in figuring out how to, to move it forward. And then you have an outside agent with less at risk that can provide more motivation and more pressure and ideas because they don't have anything to lose because they're not in the system. So I, I think that's exactly right. But the one thing I guess I push back a little bit on is this idea that the people who don't want to change and are terrified at it, you don't want at the table. Because the, the other thing that I've seen happen over my decades of work with cities is that if, if you just work with the catalytic folks and change agents, then the rest of the people wall it off and it becomes a little pocket. And then it can't actually have the structural change that you want because they rally the kind of circle the wagons around it and it doesn't go anywhere. Spot on. Very good point, Seth. And I would say that the the remedy for that is the sponsorship of this conversation. Number one is that this must be sponsored at the highest level so that should people start to try and circle the wagons and, and, and neuter the this conversation before it gets too far, that the sponsor who would be the mayor or the city administrator or whatever uh, would step in and say, ah, this has my blessing. It's going to go ahead. But the second way to accommodate what you're pointing to would be to, I think, would be to have these conversations start somewhere safe uh, where they can be really expressive and exploratory, knowing that you have to then go and start bringing in the people who are likely to be more conservative as early as possible and as beneficially as possible, because you're, you're totally right. Their destructive potential is too great not to embrace. And of course, they, they may have amazing stuff to bring in due course. And I would say, you know, as usual, the stuff that you're bringing to the table from all these conversations is really exciting, interesting, challenging. But th- this concept of keeping, I think, to me, the big takeaway from our conversation today is how do you keep the bigger picture in mind while also delivering the immediate pressures of what you need to and hold these incongruous, seemingly goals in mind of getting back to the business of daily activity of whatever that might be to you, also keeping the bigger picture in mind, while at the same time exhibiting and fostering that level of engagement from the team, whether it's in a city or in a business of that engagement and open-mindedness, while at the same time letting up some of that pressure so people don't get burned out. This seems like maybe one of the most critical conversations we've had in this nine-week journey so far about leadership and how much that is being tested right now in very subtle but very significant ways. Really fascinating conversation today, Peter. And as usual, thanks so much for for all the work and, and for teasing all this out with our participants. 
I love our chat, Seth. And um, yeah, this is Leadership Central, uh, where we've been today. Well, keep up the good work, Peter. And thanks again, as usual, for distilling all these insights from our participants. And I can't wait to hear what happens in our next catch up as our participants continue to figure out and deal with maybe a new era of leadership as we're continuing to reopen our cities, our economies, our businesses, and what that is yielding in terms of opportunities and and challenges. So thanks again. It's a pleasure. Bye-bye, Seth. Bye. Thank you once again for joining us for our ninth round of Weekly Insights. We're a couple of weeks past the midway point of our project. To catch up on some key insights, We've distilled from weekly interviews over the last two months. Check out our series of special episodes on Emerging Insights. You can find these episodes on our project page or in our podcast stream. Links are in the episode notes below. You can also delve deeper into specific weekly insights by listening to our back catalog of weekly episodes. On behalf of The Resilient Shift, this is Seth Schultz. Thank you once again. See you next week.